This is the Myth America podcast, episode three, on a birthday. It happens to be mine today, as well as Joseph Campbell's. And I thought I would share with you a recording that I did a couple of years ago on the week before my birthday, talking about the nature of birthdays. But you'll notice I'm talking about a big event where there were lots of people. and just wanted to mention that happened in the before times, pre the COVID pandemic. Thanks and come and play. I'm your host, Lee Melander, and in this hour, we explore the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that tell us, the metaphors that make meaning in our lives as we gaze at the world around us. I'm so glad you've joined me. And this morning, I'm gearing up for a big day on Saturday. I'm gearing up for a birthday. So I thought I would talk a little bit about how birthdays work in our imagination and in our world these days. I started this thought process by working through what I did over the weekend. I flew out to California from here in the Catskills in New York, and I spent the weekend at a conference, at a retreat, filled with people who want to be of service to other people, who are looking for ways to talk about what they do and put it together in an organized, coherent way such that they can reach more people and be more successful at it. And it was a a weekend that was characterized, it was called a big shift. So this was a weekend that was seeking to be transformative for the people who were there. And it was 700 people in uh, Hilton by Doubletree in San Jose, California. And it was a trip in all senses of the word. And there were some really uh, kind of remarkable things as I process what that experience felt like and, and where I started and where I ended. And I've done through the course of my life with a background in acting and the academic work that I did in mythology and psychology, I've I've delved in here and done a lot of this kind of work over the years in one way or another. And so it was a very interesting group of people. Some of the people there have, have done a lot of this work. Some of the people there were, it was the first time they'd ever sort of reached towards finding a kind of community that thought the way they did around this stuff. And it was pretty amazing. It was a weekend about reinventing oneself. It was a weekend about kind of reinvesting in oneself and seeking to be seen, to be, as I said, in community, to seek new opportunities, new resources, and on some level, some kind of salvation in this newness, in this new way of seeing yourself and how you put yourself together. And really aware of that in on the eve of, of securely sl- popped right there in midlife birthday that I'm looking at on Saturday and thinking about how this time in our lives as the dreaded middle age hits 
me. <laughs> uh, well, full on, I'm in it, whether I want to admit that or not. And I, I, I am probably like you. I look in the mirror and I think, really, how did that happen? And I think we all do that. And I think it captures a particular kind of moment and drive that human beings have. And I think it's characterized in a particular way in the United States in that we are a culture that is in love with the idea of new. We are in love with the idea of the next big thing, the next great idea. We are aware of our history, but our history is for at least the percentage of the population that is has come from other places. Our, our history in this place is short compared to most places in the world. And so we have a kind of adolescent sense of it. And we are enchanted by what comes in front of us. And I think birthdays bring a particular sense of that. It's a sense of marking of time. And we, we've, we've celebrated birthdays in a variety of cultures in a variety of ways. Uh, some cultures are more in, intrigued with the idea of celebrating a birthday than others. The, the first mentions really in, in Middle Eastern and Western culture about birthdays come from the Egyptians where they begin to celebrate the birthday of the pharaoh. And there are Egyptologists that think that probably that actually meant the day that the pharaoh was coronated because when a pharaoh becomes the pharaoh, he becomes actually a god figure. And so it's marking that sort of move into godlikeness, in, well, into, into being a god, not just being like one, to being a god. And that's kind of a cool thing to to contemplate as I'm looking at a midlife birthday, maybe this birthday is going to be the birthday of achieving God's status in at least my own universe. But most birthdays over the years are not are not quite that divine. And the the uh, Romans did some birthday celebrating, and so one of the earliest cakes, actually, sort of interesting little factoids that that uh, are swimming through my heads around birthday head, head around birthdays. One is that uh, the Greeks actually would create cakes for in a shape of a moon and put candles in them for the goddess Artemis, who was, in fact, in addition to being the way most of us know her as the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of the moon, also was actually the goddess who oversaw birth, which is a very interesting thing, I think, in, in imagining the role of birth in the world. So we didn't, the Greeks didn't hand that over to Demeter, who is really this goddess of fertility and fecundity in a very particular way, or, or, or Hera, who was sort of a household mother goddess on some levels. This is Hera was Zeus's wife, or uh, uh, Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love, and, but instead handed it to a virgin goddess who also oversaw the wild things in the world. And I think there's something really interesting in in that move. And the idea that they were celebrating her with cakes, with lit candles, is a fascinating image to me. And the idea that we do that now, of course, and we, when you're a little kid, it's very important to have the right number of candles that becomes more and more important not to have the right number of candles the older you get. I come from a time-honored tradition of the women in my family lying through their teeth about how old they are. Uh, my mother has referred to herself as the younger sister of the family for many years. My grandmother, her mom, actually was vague enough about her age that she missed out on Social Security for a couple of years because she forgot how old she was and she didn't go claim it. So 
there's something kind of wonderful about that. I think we can get caught in in what feels like this baton death march of time that we just watch these moves around the sun over the course of the year with a sense of fatality instead of seeing a sense of possibility and seeing a sense of of reimagining and reinventing who we are. And, And I think it's one of those threshold places in most of our lives. So I thought I would share a couple of poems with you. One is Mary Oliver, who's one of my very favorite poets in the world. And this is, uh, there's some imagery in this that work. It's, it's for me, it's, it worked for me this morning. It's, it's a spring morning. I, I, I love, incidentally, having a birthday in March because it's March is about the world beginning to come to life. And growing up in central Pennsylvania, there were birthdays on, that I had that were 70 degrees and there were birthdays where there were two feet of snow falling. And there's something about the marvelous volatility of that and the uncertainty of that that I really love because I think I think in a weird way it has fed my sense of anything being possible because on this day that you know as a, as again as a little kid it's that moment to feel special and celebrated and unique in the world. There's Claude Levi Strauss who did a, a fair amount of early anthropological work with South American native communities. And really struggling with how you could step into a community like that and begin to understand them without changing the nature of who they are. He wrote very eloquently about how we think we have objectivity and we probably don't. But one of the things that he discovered in one of the communities he worked with, one of the tribal communities he worked with, is that if there was somebody in the community that felt really miserable and was really down and really struggling, the community would come together and decide that they got to be the king or the queen for the day. They got to be the most important person and get really celebrated in that all day long. And what they found was that sometimes was all people needed to feel better. And I think this goes back to this, my awareness of standing in this and sitting in this room with 690 some other people over this course of this last weekend, who so many people there just wanted to be seen. They wanted to feel special. They wanted to feel unique. They wanted to feel like the things that they were imagining and hoping to make happen were special but also were contextualized and had a group of people who could reflect something back to them with excitement and interest about who they were and what they wanted to do. And so I think birthdays do that for us in a very particular way. We, we, you know, we, we trudge along most of the time and we're, sometimes we get attention and sometimes we get attaboys and good dogs and oftentimes we kind of do our stuff and we're, we're fending off the, the slings and arrows of the day or of the week or of the year. And we don't have many opportunities for people to stop and see us and celebrate who we are. And I think birthdays do that in a very particular way. And so to be able to be in a birthday that is as gloriously energetic as the end of March has has fed me well on a lot of levels. And I wonder as you're listening, as you think about when your birthday happens during the year, if that sense of what that day is, when it happens, and what tends to happen around it, if that has shaped your sense of who you are in any way, I'm guessing it probably has. And probably in some ways that you're aware of and some ways that you're not. And I, my birthday is, I'm an Aries, and as I look at 
all of the various kinds of ways of looking at zodiacs and looking at birth signs, which I'm not a literalist about in my belief in, but I think there's it's it's an interesting way to sort of open up a door and to to hold up a, a something that maybe is a reflection and maybe not, and to say is is this a reflection? And it's I am a, a creature of fire in a lot of ways, and I, I'm interested to see that I am reflected in a lot of different actually zodiac traditions with fire images and that's become something for me to work imaginally as well as i think about how i step into my life and what i think about the world so a poem from mary oliver and this is called early morning my birthday the snails on the pink sleds of their bodies are moving among the morning glories the spider is asleep among the red thumbs of the raspberries. What shall I do? What shall I do? The rain is slow. The little birds are alive in it, even the beetles. The green leaves lap it up. What shall I do? What shall I do? The wasp sits on her porch in her paper castle. The blue heron floats on the clouds. The fish leaps all rainbow and mouth from dark water. This morning the water lilies are no less lovely, I think, than the lilies of Monet. And I do not want anyone to be useful, to be docile, to lead children out of the fields into the text of civility, to teach them that they are, they are not, better than the grass. Well, that pops some really lovely, lovely kind of immediate images of nature. And that last couple of lines, I'm going to share those again. How is this for an invocation on your birthday? I do not want anymore to be useful, to be docile, to lead children out of the fields into the text of civility, to teach them that they are, they are not, better than grass. So I think on this birthday, I'm going to really think about, I'm, I'm, I'm at this point rarely docile, but I spent a lot of time being worried about being useful. And I do love civility, but there's something kind of marvelous about seeing our value not in stepping away from and seeing ourselves separate and above anything around us, even in this echo of Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass. So I think that's a great, a great place to land as I'm thinking about my birthday. And I'm at a point in my life where I don't tend to have real rituals around my birthday in a general way. They, sometimes it gets celebrated, often it doesn't. I don't seek out gifts necessarily at all, and, and they often don't come in the form of, of, you know, something with a bow on it, and I don't miss that. Again, as a kid, it was hugely important. I would get myself so worked up about birthday parties and birthday gifts that I spent the first seven or eight years of my life almost unilaterally with a horrible stomachache throughout my birthday because I would, I would be just so wound up. But the best part of the birthday in a lot of ways as a kid was one of them anyway, this around, around presence was my mom who was fairly brilliant and marvelous and a really, really, really talented 
parent, would figured out early on that little kids can rip through birthday gifts and paper and wrapping paper and ribbons and bows in about 12 seconds. And then all of the gifts are there. They've all been opened. And there's this kind of, okay, what's next? Like, this is a letdown. So she got very clever about extending this. And we used to do these elaborate hot and cold games that she would be in on with my sisters on my birthday. I would be in on with her and my other sister on my other sister's birthday. I have two sisters, one older, one younger. And she would write these marvelously ridiculous limericks that were hints and clues to what the gift was and where the gift might be. And we would have this amazing collective experience of going on a hunt, going on a quest for each of these gifts. And it it did a couple of things. One is that it expanded the present opening part of the day to the point where you didn't open 20 presents and then feel like you didn't have anything else to do. But it also became this collective delight of being engaged in, as as the birthday kid, looking for this, having this group that were laughing and were I, you know, if you're on or you're off course, they're they're so engaged. And it was such a particular way of being seen and such a particular way of being celebrated and such a build to what the gift itself was that the gift ended up having all sorts of layers of meaning about who I was and how I found it and how I was seen in my family to get there. And I think those kinds of celebrations and those kinds of rituals are just so glorious. And I think they are the kinds of things that stay with us in whether directly or indirectly. And that sense of play and that sense of delight and that sense of going after something in a, in a, uh, in this wonderful kind of questing, but light, silly way is something that again, I, I have carried with me throughout my life into my absolute, utter embrace, however reluctant, of middle age. I'm going to share another poem with you. This is called Crossroads. This is by a poet named Joyce Sutphin. And this is a poem about middle, midlife, I think, and birthdays in midlife. The second half of my life will be black to the white rind of the old and fading moon. The second half of my life will be water over the cracked floors of these desert years. I will land on my feet this time, knowing at least two languages and who my friends are. I will dress for the occasion, and my hair shall be whatever color I please. Everyone will go on celebrating the old birthdays, counting the years as usual, but I will count myself new from this inception, this imprint of my own desire. The second half of my life will be swift past leaning fence posts, a gravel shoulder, asphalt tickets, the beckon of an open road. The second half of my life will be wide-eyed, fingers shifting through fine sands, arms loose at my sides, wandering feet. There will be new dreams every night, and the drapes will never be closed. I will toss my string of keys into a deep well and old letters into the grate. The second half of my life will be ice breaking up on the river, rain soaking the fields, 
a hand held out a fire and smoke going upward, always up. That's from a collection of poems called Straight Out of View by a poet named Joyce Sutphin, written in 1995. The poem is called Crossroads. And I think this poem absolutely catches what I'm groping towards about this sense of hitting midlife and wanting to reinvent ourselves, wanting to see this second half of our life as something that has its own particular meaning. In Japan, there's actually a tradition where at the age of 60, you start counting again at one. And in other cultures at around that same age, you start counting backwards. And I love that. I think that says some really interesting things about the arc of who we are and our lives and what we're choosing to achieve or not achieve. And I met one of the people that I met at this conference this weekend is a man who is probably in his early 60s. He's been a family and child therapist for many years. And what he's finding to be the thing that speaks to him now, he loves to travel. He's been a traveler his whole life. And what he really wants to do is to bring people who are staring down the barrel of retirement out into the world to travel and to seek meaning in that experience in such a way that they help to see that this next chapter of their lives is not an ending necessarily of anything and that they get to reinvent and reimagine themselves on some levels however they want to. And he believes, and I think he's probably right, that when you travel outside of where you are and your regular patterns and your regular pieces and your regular flavors and your regular smells and sights and sounds, that that can shake and rattle out your sense of who you are in a really particular way. And if you do it in such a way that you're seeking meaning in, and I think he wouldn't probably necessarily characterize it this way because he's not necessarily coming from a place of thinking mythology is the set of glasses that works for most ways to look at the world, as I do. But I think it's a very mythic way of looking at the world. He was talking about, for example, being in Athens and looking down into the lens of a spotlight. And if you think about outdoor lighting, generally they have uh, the lenses of these, and I think it's about getting the water off the lens, that they'll they'll have like diamond shapes on them. If you think about you know, little patio lights and stuff that are set. And he looked down in this and happened to catch just at the moment when the light was hitting it in such a way that this lens reflected the Acropolis and it reflected this fractalized thousands of Acropolis in all of these lenses. And he had this exquisite riff about how that captured an essence of Athens and Greek culture and Greek imagination and his experience being there in a way that nothing else did. And so I loved that. And I think this idea of looking with those kinds of eyes at the unexpected can be an extraordinary way to think about how we recast ourselves in our lives. And can also open up for us 
the question of, well, do we really need to be reinventing ourselves or do we just need to be understanding that there are many ways to see ourselves? As in this fractal of a diamond patterned lens. And in, in my academic world, oftentimes people will talk about seeing through things, looking at things through a particular lens, looking at it through the lens of mythology. And when certainly when I first started in grad school, I had this sense that I had put on this pair of glasses that had been sitting on my desk for years. And I, I am incredibly nearsighted, have been since I was a kid. And so I, the, this this vision thing hits, hits deep to me because I, I see the world in a a rather astigmatic, blurry way in this era without glasses on, which has its own delight, I might add. I, I, I got contact lenses when I was in high school, and I, they didn't work for a variety of reasons. They really bothered my eyes in some fairly catastrophic ways. But the other part of it was that I would go into dance classes because I was a pretty serious dancer. And I had spent my entire life dancing without glasses, so I'd spent my life dancing as a nearsighted dancer. And what I saw in the mirror was an imagined version of myself. And when I put these contact lenses in my eyes, it was heartrending because I wasn't the dancer that I thought I was. And in some ways, I don't know that that sight was, in some ways that sight was very clear, and in some ways it probably wasn't because what it did was brought up every all of the self-doubt stuff that I am prone to and all of the, well, that's not good enough, that's not good enough, that's not good enough, and body image stuff and all of that stuff. And so I started after, and I got the contact lenses really inspired to do that so I could see in class. And I found that after a couple of weeks, even before I abandoned them because they were bothering my eyes so much, I stopped wearing them in class because it ruined my sense of seeing myself as an artist, I got so caught up in seeing myself as an imperfect person and an imperfect body in the mirror that I couldn't do it. I couldn't, it wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't delightful. There wasn't any beauty in it to me. And so I think that sense of how we're seeing ourselves and how we're looking at things is such a deep part of this. And I think seeing our sense of what our own expectations are is is a key thing that we work on throughout the course of our lives. And I think a birthday, and particularly a midlife birthday, offers, a, offers up, an, uh, up an opportunity to to work that in in a rich way. And we can we can open what I love about this time of our lives and and is that it is i think a place where we have this moment of breath about oh there are other possibilities and i think it's why we get so restless you know we talk about midlife crisis and we make jokes about red sports cars and second wives that are 19 years old and people sort of losing their identity and losing their marbles over this and we can definitely do that and at the same time, and I, I'm certainly very aware of the grieving process of feeling like I'm I'm not going to be 25 ever again. And there's some relief in that. There's some delight in that. And there's also some real sorrow in that. And I think, so as we sit in this crossroads, as Joyce Sutphin called her poem, we have choices to make. So her choices are about 
the images that she's choosing to see and to invite. I'm going to share these, some of these again, I think, because they're really powerful. So she starts out, The second half of my life will be black to the white rind of the old and fading moon. Some power in that image, and, and especially with Artemis sort of sitting in the background. The second half of my life will be water over the cracked floor of these desert years. So this is, boy, is she ever invoking where she's been has been in the desert, and she's, she's finding water. And so this time around, here's what she's promising herself. She's going to land on her feet this time, knowing at least two languages and who my friends are. I shall dress for the occasion, and my hair shall be whatever color I please. Everyone will go on celebrating the old birthday, counting the years as usual. But I will count myself new from this inception, this imprint of my own desire. So she's moving to a place where she wants to be, rather than necessarily where the world thinks she should be. And she's going to surround herself with the images and the people and the places and the fluidity where does this need to reinvent ourselves come from? And why does it matter to us so much? What is so important about it? And so I thought I would spend a little bit of time sort of digging into that. There's a, a wonderful article uh, online. Uh, the title is called Technological Determinism and the Myth of Self-Reinvention. You can find it on Google if you look. Technological Determinism and the Myth of Self-Reinvention. And it's actually an article about social media and how we can reinvent ourselves in social media and in some ways though we forget that there is the context of all of the social media behind us we tend to look forward and again this is this very it's certainly not unique to uh, the US but it's a very american way of always looking forward without thinking about what's behind us that that the it's the next tweet you know it's the next facebook post that that's who identif- that's who we are and we can on some level reinvent our sense of who we are each time with that. And, but what he's working, what the author of this article is working that I found really intriguing is this sense of ourself and the other, the inside and outside, how we identify ourselves and how we, how we are reflected by the people who look at us. And on a day like a birthday when part of what that is about is being seen in a very particular way. And when we are seen by other people, we are always reflections of them and ourselves at the same time. And we are, we are always, however far we are into a community or a tribe or a sense of family, there's always a sense of, you know, that ego-driven, I'm, I'm this unique thing, and I'm never going to be completely integrated with somebody else, which is not a bad thing, because when you lose that, really bad things happen psychologically to people, and that's when they have breaks, and uh, schizophrenia is, is a shattering of the ego, for example, in a very particular way. So the ego plays a really important role keeping us balanced, but it also always has this kind of impermeable barrier between us and the other, with a capital O, sort of whatever is not us. So from this article... There's a profound ambiguity in the gaze of the other, which is a great image itself, because it's holding so many things, right? And perhaps something like the Derridian, uh, meaning uh, Jacques Derrida, the, the French uh, philosopher who played with wonderfully absurd 
dichotomies throughout the course of his thinking career. So, and in, in this is the Derridian condition of possibility, which is also paradoxically the condition of impossibility. This is an idea that I adore. I, my doctoral work was, my dissertation work was on frivolity and on a Kantian idea about the purposefulness of purposelessness. So the idea of the possibility that also holds impossibility within it pleases me because I think it sits in that sort of discomfort in a really particular way. Going on with the article, the other appears at first as the obstacle to becoming who you want to be. They stop you by saying, well, you've changed. That's not you. And at the same time, it's precisely this reaction that is sought after when we dramatically change our appearance. And while it may be frustrating frustrating to have friends and family refuse to let you change, imagine the disappointment of putting together a whole new look and finding that everyone barely notices. Think about that when you get your hair cut or you lose 10 pounds or you, you've shifted something in a conscious way about how you're presenting yourself to the world. We, you, you really want people to notice. It's kind of a bummer if nobody says anything. So he continues, the shocked reaction of the other in you've changed now has a different meaning, signaling that the desired effect has been achieved and in a way making that change possible in the first place. So our identity is caught up in this reflection, this mirror gaze of the other, and flips between what we recognize being recognized and not being recognized. And we don't, we sit, I think, in this really interesting dichotomy of wanting people to see us clearly, wanting them to see us how we think we see ourselves, but also wanting them to see things in us that, we don't necessarily see. One of the most meaningful moments actually over this last weekend was an exercise that a woman who's worked with the guy who, who runs this event as she's a, a coach, uh, as a, um, I don't know if she's a life, would qualify herself as a life coach or a, or a business coach, I think probably a life coach, which is more sort of dealing with the who do I want to be in a broader way, who am I, who do I want to be. It's a shift from the the healing model of psychology, which is a whole, actually, that's a whole interesting other show sometime about how we are seeking, I think, as a community to change some of the paradigms that the psychological community has been sitting in for the last hundred years. But she also, what she's, where her heart is, where, where her real deep work is, she has a program that is based in Northern California and is spreading throughout California where she's trying, she's trying to, has huge, huge goal, noble goal of removing bullying from our schools for kids and trying to shake that out of the experience that little kids have, which is a pretty amazing thing because it's everywhere. It's horrendous. It's, I think, one of the epidemics of our era. And I think there are a variety of reasons why that is. And I think grown-ups have looked the other way, I think, far too long. So she led this group. Again, think 700 people in a ballroom at a, at a double tree in San Jose, right? You can, see, you can see the room. You can see the chairs. You can see the carpet. It looked just like that. We're broken down into groups of four people. And our challenge in this very short, maybe 10-minute long exercise is to look at each one of the people. And these are people that we've not met before. So it's that very sort of scary forced intimacy thing that I both love and hate about events like this. And the invitation is to sit without speaking and just look at each other 
which is in and of itself something we don't do all that often. We, we, when we watch people, we don't like them catching us watching them. We don't like necessarily catching people watching us. We get uncomfortable. We make that kind of eye contact, and we're not sure how to handle it, at least in this culture. That isn't necessarily true in every culture around the world, but in, in culture that's been driven by Western European culture, it's a big deal. And, and it's very powerful to look eyeball to eyeball to somebody that you don't know and not say anything. And there are all sorts of these m- dynamics going on about who looks away first and who blinks first, and, and it can be a, a really terrifying thing to do. It can also be really empowering and really opening. So we did that for a few minutes, and then the game became to sit, and what she's trying to do is break how we how we judge people, how we do, you know, we, when we look at somebody, we've got these immediate, oh, sort down the list of, you know, size, shape, hair color, eye color, how they present themselves. And we make all of these very fast assumptions and judgments about who that person might be quickly. And the studies have shown that, I mean, literally within seconds, we've, we've drawn conclusions about people, good, bad, or indifferent. And so what she's trying to do is bring some awareness to this and think about how we process that. So our challenge, next challenge, is in this group is to one person is sort of sitting on the hot seat and everybody in the group is saying to that person what wonderful things they see in them. Again, we don't know each other at all. We know each other's first names. We don't maybe where we're from and that's it. We don't know anything about who anyone is or how old we are or what our life experience has been, what our work is, nothing. And Wow, this was an amazing thing. And it was, first of all, not easy to be, I I ended up being the person who was getting it, getting that attention first. And I found myself sitting with my toes all curled up in these tiny little balls and sitting on my hands because I was just like, "Ah," about getting that kind of focus. And they said amazing things, and it was generous, and they were kind. It was a, it was a lovely group of, of it was happened to be all women in my group, and they were they were neat. They were a good group, and they ranged in age and and in culture. Uh, there was one woman who is uh, first generation Asian, lives in Florida. Uh, uh, like you know, so they're coming from very different places, and they all had these lovely, soft, gentle insights but they had really interesting insights and saw things about me that I would not have imagined somebody could see that fast. And then sitting and being able to do that for them, it became this amazing opportunity to sort of share this gift of, I'm seeing you and I'm seeing you in a particular, powerful, generous, generative way. So being able to both give that and receive that, in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to give that than it is to take it in. And so in this identity of how we define who we are and how we imagine ourselves to be, that dance between what we feel inside, what we feel in sort of our big psyche-based, soul-based, subconscious, all of that stuff that sits behind 
this more defined world of ego. And, and when I say ego, I don't, we, we've, we've, we've badly translated that world. We think of ego as, oh, he's got a really big ego, as being egotistical. And in fact, when Freud was talking about ego, he really was talking about this thing that keeps us from just sort of oozing into the world without any sense of who we are as an individual. That ego is the thing that allows us to be an individual and is hugely important to the human psyche. So that's what I mean when I say ego, not, not being full of yourself, but, but being in yourself, being of yourself, being, being who you are in, in a way that does always stand a little bit separate from the rest of the world. So when we're standing in that and we've got all of this stuff swirling in our, in our memories, in our subconscious, in our psyche, deep down, even in our bodies about who we are, and that dance between that part of our, uh, who we are and, and this more shaped sense of who the, what the ego is trying to create boundaries. It's a, ego's a boundary guy. He's, ego says, well, that sits over here and this sits there and that's a wall there and, and this is all good because I know where all the pieces are. So we've got that dance going on inside of us and then we've got this dance of this mirroring that's happening with the person that are star- that's staring at us and, and either literally or metaphorically throughout our life, the other, this thing that we will never be. And the energy in that place is so extraordinary and so powerful that I think we spend a lot of our lives on some level kind of running from it because it's really scary. So if I can share with you a birthday wish, I wanted to do things. I've got lots more things to say, but I think I'm going to wait on on that. I'm going to share... One more poem with you, which is a Stanley Kunitz poem, and then I'm going to share with you my ritual on my birthday as a piece of music on the way out the door. So Stanley Kunitz was one of my favorite poets. He lived in Provincetown. I met him briefly once. And this is a poem that he wrote called Passing Through on his 79th birthday. And he says, Nobody in the widow's household ever celebrated anniversaries. In the secret of my room, I would not admit I cared that my friends were given parties. Before I left town for school, my birthday went up for smoke, in smoke, in a fire at City Hall that gutted the Department of Vital Statistics. If it weren't for the census report of a five-year-old male sharing my mother's address at the Green Street Tenement in Worcester, I would have no documentary proof that I exist. You are the first, my dear, to bully me into festive occasions. Sometimes you say I wear the abstracted look that drives you up the wall as though it signified distress or disaffection. Don't take it so to heart. Maybe I enjoy not being as much as being who I am. Maybe it's time for me to practice growing old. The way I look at it, I'm passing through a phase. Gradually, I'm changing into a word. Whatever you choose to claim of me is always yours. Nothing is truly mine except my name. I only borrowed this dust. That's Stanley Kunitz. So if you're coming up on a birthday over this next year, which I trust you will be doing, I wish you a happy one. And I want to leave you with the thing that I do every year without fail on my birthday because it captures to me a sense of imagining who we are in a very particular way. And this is, I think, my favorite piece of music in the world from Rayfon Williams. The Lark Ascending. Stop by MythAmericaRadio.com and I'll leave a link in the post on this podcast to a recording of The Lark Ascending. Or conversely, go and find a piece of music that speaks to you and makes your day. Enjoy and happy birthday whenever that's coming.
much for joining me today. Myth America is sponsored by Spillian, a place to revel in the Catskill Mountains of New York. You can find out more about Myth America, Spillian, and me at mythamericaradio.com. Please stop by and share your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you.